Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, and me, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. We come to you today honored, elated, uh, and also dutiful in our 51st episode, an auspicious episode in which we will be doing our our second ever, uh, what will we call this, question and answer sounds so pedestrian, we need something (laughs) a bit more. I don't know, a bit, a bit more official sounding than question and answer. In our second ever uh, public address, <laughs> our second ever uh, manifesto colloquium, and we appreciate all of you um, who sent in questions, who tweeted comments, um, and all of that jazz, who buzzed in our ears or texted us, and um, even those of you who um, sent sly insults um you know, denigrated Phil to me, denigrated me to Phil. All of it's appreciated. And one way or the other, it all adds to the experience. So here we are, 51, more than half a century. And uh, Phil, what do you have to say for yourself? I, I'm I'm delighted to still be doing this. Uh, we just hit half a million downloads, which is crazy. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for the fact that there's a community of listeners out there who are into listening to us talk about all this weird stuff and, and, and who give us feedback and we've actually met a bunch of people through the podcast or like folks who listen to the podcast and we had on the podcast because they had interesting things to say. So yeah, thanks everybody for listening and for the feedback that you give us. We really appreciate it. We'd also like to thank Fairfield University for sponsoring Manifesto, a podcast. Fairfield is a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach there, so it's great to be associated with Fairfield, and we thank them for their sponsorship. And the the kind of podcast world seems to be divided between like um, popular history stuff, some of which I quite like. And then, so, like, popular history, totally brain-dead, smarmy politics, and then um, kind of, um, uh, what would you call it, humor? Like, the, the new sort of uh, comedian, stand-up comic podcasting seems to be very, very popular, with Rogan then being in a, a kind of category unto himself. And um, I feel like we straddle those those worlds a little bit, uh, a little bit of all of that, and, and maybe um, maybe something else as well. So, okay, so we have some questions here, and I guess we should just work through this list. Okay, so on February twenty eighth, this is a recent one, and this came from at under Sneege, and he asked. What lesser known but significant for purposes of delivering a manifesto, historic event or character do you think is crying out for a film lit TV adaptation in our current moment? So I am working on a novel that begins with my 
grandfather accepting the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of Henry Kissinger, which is a real thing that happened. My grandfather was a career diplomat. He was the ambassador to Norway at the time that Kissinger won the Nobel Prize. It was controversial uh, for obvious reasons. And at first, Kissinger was going to decline it, um, uh, but that would have caused an issue. So they had my grandfather accept it and deliver Kissinger's speech. The Norwegian students threw snowballs at my grandfather's car, which I think is a delightfully Scandinavian form of protest. And there's something to me that's really interesting because my, my grandfather was is a very religious man. He had been in the Jesuits, actually, started out in the Jesuits, and then he was in the labor unions, worked in the labor unions. He's actually the DNC's like labor guy for the um, Adlai Stevenson campaign. He wrote Adlai Stevenson's union speeches for him, and then he went into the Foreign Service. Um, and so my grandfather was somebody with a very different sense of the meaning of history and power than somebody like Henry Kissinger, right? And it's also just sort of fascinating to me to think about, say, the, you know, if you look at like King delivering the Nobel Prize speech nine years earlier, and he has this very theologically informed sense of what history is and where power comes from, right? Which is from social movements, right? Um, versus, you know, the kind of Kissingerian, like, no notion that sort of history is a series of meaningless events can be that can be shaped by the will of great statesmen like you know Metternich or Richelieu or Kissinger, um, and so for to have my grandfather giving that speech is is interesting and compelling to me, and I think it's a compelling time. And the speech articulates a particular vision uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War, or the end of the Vietnam War um, of American what America thinks it's doing in the world um, that is compelling to me. How would you sum that up? What's the sort of uh, core of the American mission in that speech? Well, you're going to have to read the novel, Jake. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well done. But um, yeah, it's worth reading. It's worth reading the King speech and then the Kissinger speech and thinking about the... Because you don't think of Kissinger in terms of his... Um, you know, the the moral justification for America's role in the world was not really Kissinger's bailiwick, right? Right. Um, I didn't know that he had uh, originally considered not accepting it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal. And my grandfather ended up sort of negotiating between, you know, the Norwegians and uh, who were pretty upset about the idea uh, because the his Vietnamese counterpart had declined, right? So it would have been a big flub if if Kissinger had said no as well. Uh, and then also at the same time, which is fascinating to me, Jake, all right, listen. So when he was uh, in Norway, the Norwegian um, prime minister at the time had been, so hadn't been formally, edu formally educated, had been a lumberjack and a whaler, um, had been in the resistance during the Nazi occupation. At the end, he was captured, sent to a camp. At the end of the war, he was found on a pile of bodies, and only his little finger was moving. 
comes back to Norway, is involved in Norwegian politics, becomes prime minister, right around the time that you know Norway has just discovered it's got massive reserves of oil and it's beginning to drill, um, and they put in sort of massive taxes on the oil wealth and sort of manage the production so it scales up relatively slowly compared to what Americans are want at the time um, and sort of lays the foundation for a lot of Norway's current um, like sovereign wealth fund and, and all that other stuff. Uh, so interesting, interesting character. Um, anyway, but yeah, I'm, I, the novel's not about Norway, but uh, that's where it starts. So yeah, but yeah, if there was if there was any other thing that I was that like I thought really deserved literary treatment, uh, I would be writing it. So <laughs> that's that's kind of how I how I operate. Right? Uh, you know, lesser known is the kind of key here. Um, okay, so that was uh, we had a, a novel length answer from Phil. I'll go short. <laughs> I think uh, um, off the top of my head, just because I've been thinking about it lately, thinking about him lately. Uh, Norbert Wiener, who's the father of cybernetics and uh, a very important figure in the development of the internet. Rough name. It, it, fascinating life. And after his first book, wrote a, a second book that's a kind of manifesto called The Human Use of Human Beings, that was a reaction to the embrace of his earlier work um, by the defense establishment, essentially, which, you know, had not happened surreptitiously. It had been done for the defense establishment. Um, but I think that you could get a lot of the, you know, just thinking of this in kind of storytelling and narrative terms also, it's, you know, you think of a character in whom you could tell a larger story and who's both interesting in their own right and enough going on in their own life to, to hold an audience's attention, certainly to hold my attention. And then also uh, a window into a larger story. And I, I think he's got all that for sure. So that would be um, my choice. Okay, let's go. You want to read the next one? So Dear Manifesto, is beauty really truth and truth beauty? That's all I need to know. Georgie Porgy. <laughs> That's actually George Chialaba. <laughs> George Chialaba. Yeah. I, I don't know if he really wanted an answer uh, so much as to screw with us, but what do you think, Jake? Um, I think that um, I think truth is closer to beauty than, than beauty is to truth, but um, no... Ultimately, if that's all he needs to know, and you know, if it's all he needs to know, then the answer is no. Beauty is not really truth, and truth is not really beauty. But they're awfully, um, you know, snuggled up to one another. Sebald uh, once said, "If a story is a, is aesthetically right, then it is probably also morally right." Has he read Celine or no? <laughs> well, this is a question that I have. You know, like I think about. You know, because you did a great Patreon on the Empathy of the Perverse, and and there are writers like Celine and Poe, where you know there's these like, can we separate the artist from the art? Where it's like, no, you you shouldn't separate the artist from the art because what is horrible about the artist is 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 one of the animating 
demons driving the work, right? And it's tremendously compelling. But of course, I wouldn't. But now we're talking about sort of. Um, so, what is the value that I put then on something like Celine? Because I do value it a lot, and I do think that he's expressing something very true, right? Um, I think that there's a way in which these are incomplete truths, but then everything is sort of an incomplete truth, right? Um, I think I've mentioned Hansers von Balthasar's discussion of like sort of truth being a symphonic thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there can be sort of hideously impartial truths, but nevertheless tell us something that we desperately need to know, right? I mean, um, you know, you come across this in more writing where there's a certain kind of like, uh, when redeployment came out, people are like, is this an anti-war book? And it's sort of, to write a, a book that I self-consciously thought of as an anti-war book to me would seem to betray what you're trying to do when you try and write fiction, right? Which is not because I want to write a book that's like, hey, war is great. Um, but that if we're going to deal with evil in the world, we need to sort of understand, we need to actually see clearly, right? In the way that Conrad talks about. And um, seeing clearly will will expose us to our our hideous desires as well as our more noble moral impulses, right? Um, that said, I do think that sort of a, a careful approach to the aesthetic does sort of have a, a lining up with truth. There's a, there's a actually Be Becca Rothfeld, who we had on for the Firestone, has a piece on this um, where she talks about Madame Bovary and how um, uh, she writes, the events of Madame Bovary lend themselves to sappy exposition, but the novel is acutely aware of its potential for triteness. It is at least in part about the moral pitfalls of triteness, and so it is at least in part a stylistic rejoinder to books too cowardly to revitalize banality with freshness of phrasing. The romance novels that Emma consumes so fervently are morally bad, sexist, trivializing, reductionist, because they are aesthetically bad, because they describe female anguish so theatrically, right? Mm. Um, and uh, Henry James, she mentions Henry James, uh, uh, talking about that the triumph of the book is that Emma interests, interests us by the nature of her consciousness and the play of her mind, thanks to the reality and beauty with which those sources are invested. And so there's a way in which, you know, she points out like the, the events of, of Madame Bovary could be a romance, a bad romance novel, right? Very easily like that, that structure would fit. Um, what, but the, there's, uh, his sort of attunement to the sort of demands of art push push him towards greater moral seriousness and and a sort of focus on truth. You know, and I, I was thinking about this question in in relationship to music, right? Because um, you know, can can a note of music that doesn't have any words be true or false? And I think that it, it can, right? There can be sort of overly sweet cloying. <laughs> Uh, sort of cheap. But only in the symphonic sense. Right. Right. Because it wouldn't necessarily be overly. And it's hard to imagine a note being overly sweet and cloying if all you're hearing is a single note. Right. So there has to be some 
composition or arrangement sure. that conveys the, the cloying character. And then you're getting to what you mentioned earlier, which I think is exactly right, which is this sort of uh, symphonic aspect of truth. And in those terms, you know, the, the element of uh, beauty that is convergent with a, a kind of um, experiential truth that I think Becca is describing in Bovary is not the same thing as an ethical truth mm-hmm. necessarily. Right. And so this was a, a conversation, a disagreement um, in some ways that we had on the podcast with Becca, where I brought up that, you know, that classically there's this, uh, you know, in kind of intellectual and theological terms, um, what's thought of as this sort of division between Greek civilization yeah. and Jewish civilization. And Greek civilization is an aesthetic civilization, which is also to say an experiential uh, civilization and Jewish civilization is an ethical civilization, which is not to say it's not based in experience because Judaism is all about being in the world. And, you know, you know, the kind of classical example is like there's 613 mitzvot, right? 613 things that you are commanded to do, good deeds that you are commanded to do. All of them require action. There's no such thing as a spiritual mitzvah. Right. All of them are acts you have to do in the world. So it's it's not that there's not an experiential dimension, but it's not a um, intersubjective experiential dimension. Or it's not like experiencing the aesthetics of self. It's not that kind of experience. And um, so, look, I, I don't want to bore Georgie Porgy here with <laughs> by like laying it on too thick. I know he wants, I, I know how he is and he wants like just a short <laughs> declarative answer. <laughs> if I know anything about him, that's what he wants. I, I mean, it's by the way, how cool that um, he texted you that. Um, if, 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 you, if you don't know George Shilaba's essays, you should check out George Shilaba's essays. They're phenomenal. Yeah. He, you know, speaking of a guy who's uh, a, a guy who understands commands aesthetics um, in pursuit of a a truth. Yeah, I mean that's how I think. But look, I'm not somebody who's uh, anti aesthetic. I mean, I'm very much invested in aesthetics, but I think of aesthetics as something that you use to achieve effects. Which I think, you know, I think that's how Poe thought of aesthetics also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I model what Poe is doing in a sense, and um, it, which is to say, if you're using aesthetics to achieve that, it means that you know they are not inherently the same. Okay, next question. Let's see. All right, let me do before we get to the questions. Let me just uh, let me do some highlights. So Davis Thompson, um, who you know, has been, I think, from the beginning with us and who's been like a great thoughtful listener, wrote a very, um, a very, a a great email full of kind of insights about the podcast and um, his own reflections on it. And one of the things he said was, um, the motto, you know, he singled us out as something he liked. The motto, may you continue to be a person. I'm on my third or fourth year of teaching invisible man to my high school seniors. 
And that motto alone helps me give students a way to grapple with that giant book, which, if I remember right, I started teaching because of hearing you guys talk about it on Manifesto. So I love that. I love that. That is so cool, man. Thank you. Like, there's nothing better to hear than that. Speaking of Joseph Keegan, who we were talking about a moment ago, the great Joey Keegan, um, he also, Davis also mentions, Manifesto has also led me to learn about all kinds of different thinkers and writers I'd never heard of before, Chaim Grade in particular, and led me to read and teach things I would not have considered otherwise. I am particularly grateful for being led to read The Omni-Americans and Did You Kill Anyone um, by the great Scott Beauchamp. Very cool. He's also a big yeah. fan of you saying a podcast at the start. <laughs> yes. He says it sounds like you're biting off a cigar and gets a little funnier every time you say it. What what he doesn't I mean, at some point I need to like put in drop in a clip of you doing all your false start <laughs> intros where you're not satisfied with it. Uh, where you have to start again. Three hours or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he gave us uh, his his favorite um, ten episodes number one of which was uh, my quarrel with authentic reactionaries, right? With Joey Keegan. So that was very cool. I guess the kind of question is like the stuff he wanted. He wants to hear more of us discussing uh, being a father, not the private stuff. But I mean, what I'll say about being a father is I, I was thinking about this a lot and two things come to mind immediately about being a father. One is that, uh, um, I think you can hear my kids in the background for most of this episode. <laughs> um, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, this will sound sort of overly practical or overly, um, overly kind of uh, topical or something, but there is a sentiment that I think is quite common these days that it's very important to wait until later in life to have children because, which, you know, I did. Uh, uh, but that that's important because you need all of this time for your career. I certainly didn't need the time for my career. So that was, but I think maybe that was uh, somewhere in the back of my head, but you know, I had spent my, my twenties were spent differently than a lot of my peers. And I was on sort of a different course and, um, and I bring it up because I do think that there is this sort of common, uh, sentiment among certainly people in big cities, um, middle class, upper middle class people that, you know, you, you're supposed to wait and like, be very accomplished. And then once you've done all that, then you sort of settle down and have kids. I would say that I get like three hours of sleep these days. You know, I have young children. I get like no sleep and um, it's kind of a madhouse and I'm doing more things than I've ever done. And I'm more productive than I've ever been in my life. I'm just like, insanely productive and doing things all the time. And uh, why am I so productive? Because like, I like my kids and I like my family and um, I want to do things and like be in the world. And, you know, the idea that you shouldn't have children because they're going to get in the way of your life just seems to me a kind of horribly bleak misunderstanding of what um, being in your own life is, you know, and, um, and so that, that's the kind of one of the practical things I would say. I just feel like, you know, my kids both like 
make it hectic and insane and like mad and I don't sleep and also make the days bigger and longer and like yeah. uh, more full of life. It's, it's both of the, you know, it's like bursting in every direction. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's posters that say never, ever shake a baby. Val and I are like, what the, f who would shake a baby? We're like in love with this little baby. What they don't tell you is you're going to want to shake that baby. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I, <laughs> my son had a ear infection and, and like a sort of stomach issues. Uh, my two-year-old and I had a book review due a sort of 1500 word review due uh, in two days. And like, he literally didn't sleep, you know, like the whole night just didn't sleep until finally, like in like around like four or five in the morning. Um, like he finally like pooped and <laughs> all this like <laughs> constipation came out and then he was able to sleep. Um, and, uh, and so I was just like sort of delirious kind of writing this thing that I uh, thought I'd have like two very kind of calm days. And instead I had like a, a pissed off sick kid with me uh, the entire time. But, uh, you know. Well, you got it done. <laughs> it all got done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just makes life richer in many ways, you know? Yeah, I think it's, that's exactly right. Um yeah, and look, we'll we'll talk more about this stuff when it comes up. It's hard to sort of on the spot generate thoughts about fatherhood in that way, but it's certainly something that we don't shy away from talking about when it when we're thinking about it in the context of other things. And I think you know it's something we like to talk about that's on our mind. Yeah. Um, and I would say the same thing. So the, he also says, Davis also says, religion. Um, when you two guys who take religious belief seriously have a conversation about what it's like to be a believer in the modern world, it's hardening. And, you know, what's interesting about that is that, um, or noteworthy about that is that I'm fantastically ignorant uh, about um, most of what I talk about, but specifically about the Jewish subjects that I talk about. I know almost nothing. And um, No, I've noticed that about you. I, I think it'd be hard not to don't feel proud of yourself that you notice that it's screamingly obvious. Right? Ignorance is not something that you need to be a detective to land on. But, uh, but no, I know next to nothing. And it's, I, you know, part of, I think what you get in these conversations between Phil and I, from my end is the joy of discovery at this period of my life where I'm studying and interested in what this says to me, both for quite personal reasons and uh, also because I understand in a way that I, I think I understood religion in uh, this sort of probably fairly predictable cultural dimension when I was younger. And then in a, separate and fairly unintegrated religious sense, but not in a uh, way that made much difference to me in my day-to-day uh, -day consciousness of, of myself or in my sense of what made the world operate the way it does. And, 
And now when I look around, I, I think that, uh, I think that it's often, you know, the, the sort of religious reading of something and specifically the Jewish reading of something is often will seem to me the deepest explanation, the best explanation of something that, um, you know, it's right up it's Purim next week. So I'm reading the book of Esther. And I mean, it's just an incredible kind of terrifying, but amazing historically rich story. I uh, speaking of things that, you know, what would you turn into a book or a movie? I mean, the book of Esther is got everything, sex, violence, palace, intrigue, um, you know, really like violent violence, uh, a, a, a woman hero, a heroine, uh, incredible. And it's also, um, you know, the, the kind of lessons of the Book of Esther, the meaning that it's intended to impart is not just, um, it's not that it's not just like a, the, the sort of the simple fable of, uh, you know, a, a single hero saving her people, um, or the outwitting the king. It's uh, it's about you know what you realize is that with all of these stories, it's also it's supposed to be about you as well. All of this is you're supposed to recognize that this is about you specifically as well. So anyway, I'm I'm glad Davis likes it. I'm just trying to give a little bit of insight into. Where I'm you know, the, the, the stuff with fatherhood and religion go together for me because one thing that um, having kids sort of, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's like this sense of yourself as like a brain walking around in a body, you know, an individual brain walking around in a body. It's like a sense of yourself when you're younger and, um, and the experience of having kids just like... <laughs> It's like you're an animal at the whims of other animals, right? And you're part of a collective. Uh, and and that's wonderful, right? It's a wonderful thing. Especially um, when you're still the bigger animal, it's uh, there are advantages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and not to like, doesn't need to focus too much on that, but there was a recent thing that people were sort of amused by because Pope Francis had, had tweeted about social justice demands we fight against the causes of poverty, inequality, lack of labor, land, and lodging, uh, and so on. Uh, and Jordan Peterson responded to him, there is nothing Christian about social justice. Redemptive salvation is a matter of the individual soul. What a Protestant thing to say to the Pope, by the way. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Protestant move to, to explain to the Pope what Christianity is. <laughs> father was a, a minister, right? Peterson's father is some. Uh, I, you you know more about Peterson than me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very Protestant. But my, you know my my religious attitudes are so far away from that, right? Yeah, yeah. And that is related to my sense of myself as 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 a father uh, and a husband. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I have this feeling as a father that I'm just like, oh, it's all true, actually. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's all true. That's that's uh, my feeling. This religion stuff, it's all true. That's how yeah. I. That's uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Um, okay, so 
Brian Chow, who used to go by, um, what did he call himself? Texas? Um, oh, man, Cactus. Sorry, not Texas. Ridiculous. Um, Brian's a, a very smart guy. I, I was on his podcast when I believe he was still going by Cactus um, Chew, but um, Brian asked uh, a, an interesting question. He said, do you think people can ever get used to machine learning? in the same way they've gotten used to cars or soap. Inspired by an answer Jacob Siegel gave to me about complexity, which generates complexity. And that was uh, from a conversation that we had on his podcast. So I guess the core is, do you ever, uh, do you think people can get used to machine learning in the way they've gotten used to cars or soap? What do you think, Phil? So the answer is yes. And I think that that will change how we, I think it will change how we operate and make art, but like, I think every time there's a sort of technological advance, there's this sort of fear um, that comes along with it. The, 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 the first thing that I thought of was, are you familiar with the Milman-Perry thesis about the, the Iliad? No. So the idea is that the Iliad probably emerged from a improvisatory oral storytelling tradition, right? And he like did this uh, research with improvising illiterate bards performing in Yugoslavia and found that there were sort of similarities of things inside the Iliad uh, as outside. So for example, like certain characters have uh, Homeric epithets, right? Um, the long haired Achaeans, um, uh, bronze cloaked, and, and, and there are sort of all these different, you know, rosy fingered dawn is, is one of the more famous ones. And what he realized was these epithets are attached to the characters because you can plug in different epithets to sort of fill out the line, uh, the poetic sort of line. And it is to allow, it makes it easier for a performing bard to have sort of like this, um, a uh, different set of kind of metrical forms that he can easily plug in and also allows him to kind of formulate the next line. And people would think like, this is impossible. The Iliad's so long, but in illiterate cultures, actually like, yeah, people do incredibly long things. Um, it is improvisatory to a certain degree. So there's like this sort of moving from illiterate culture to from an uh, illiterate culture that, you know, and there are all sorts of theories about the composition of the Iliad and whatever that, that aren't worth getting into. But the important thing is, Writing itself is a technology that changed how we created art, right? And without that technology, we had a different technology, which was like this complex system of epithets, right? And right now, I write differently than somebody who does not have access to the internet because I'm able to very rapidly move between a, a large range of sources, right? And that affects, you know, how I work, actually, um, which then affects the writing that I produce. And I think that machine learning is never going to... I think there's this sort of fear that we're going to obliterate the human. I remember I was at a reading with Ian McEwen, and I asked him a question because he, he'd... He, he told everybody that they should read Slingerland's What the Humanities Can Learn from Science or What Science Has to Teach the Humanities, which is an interesting book. But like I read it and I was like, I don't know. I mean, like it's interesting, but I don't know how it would be useful to a writer. So I asked him and he didn't actually have a specific answer. He sort of more generally said that um, science has encroached on what we used to think of as the soul. 
right? Um, I don't actually think it has, right? I think that as our scientific tools become more sophisticated, we tend to think that that's what we've done. Um, but uh, I just frankly think it's it's ridiculous. Um, and there's a bit in Becker Rothfeld in the most recent point has a piece on like the chatbot stuff. And uh, she has a quote from John Paul that I love so much. Um, Books, the German romantic novelist John Paul once wrote, are thick letters to friends. Who would want to correspond with the void? Voice so intimately tethered to the singular sensibilities of an author has yet to be effect effectively mechanized either by machines or machine-like humans. And, um, and so I think people will use the technology and the production of things that ultimately are meant to communicate something real. Uh, but I, I don't think that it's going to um, encroach on what I actually care about. Maybe that's overly optimistic. I think that's overly optimistic. Uh, not, <laughs> because it, not because it will encroach on the soul, but because it will, uh, it's already the case that you can see it. Um, I, I, I think the danger is the machine like humans that Rothfeld notes, not it's, in, it's interesting how effectively the chatbots can already imitate like corporate, like PR speak and HR speak and that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. They can, um, imitate the most um, machine-like sectors of society. I mean, there's a convergence that occurs here, right? So bureaucracy is a kind of machine. It's a kind of human technology, and uh, it's, it is designed to be reprogrammable, formatable in that way. It makes it easier to imitate. The danger is not that machines will encroach on the soul in the sense that they'll um, begin to um, colonize the domain of the soul. The danger is that the machine, in redirecting one's interest and in, in reformatting the patterns of one one's consciousness, which is precisely what the technology of writing did in the way you explain it, can lead to a diminishment of interest in the matters of the soul yeah. that is not supernatural, that is not uh, dependent on strong or general AI, that is not a, a function of the creation of some, you know, new demon of AI, but that's a a, an incremental process and you know the the immediate comparison would be to the movable type printing press because it's you know fairly recent and because what it introduced was a communications technology uh, that reformatted consciousness and reformatted human affairs across the board you know, what we think of as modernity uh, has a, a few starting points, but one of them certainly is the printing press, and it's inconceivable 
modern nationalist movements, for instance, nationalism, romantic nationalism is inconceivable without the printing press. The kind of sentimental attitudes described in Madame Bovary, not just the storytelling of like, obviously, uh, you know, mass paperbacks, mass produced books wouldn't exist without the, the printing press. That's obvious. What's maybe not so obvious is that those, that technology was not simply capturing something that existed. It was generating the phenomena that it was also recording. So the types of people described by Flaubert, the types of people um, who appear in the 19th century novels, the types of people who are modern in certain very distinctive senses are products of the way that this technology makes them relate to themselves and to each other and the way that it it gives them a kind of uh, internal uh, an internal record of themselves that they can keep track of in part because they have this extension of themselves to use the McLuhanite um, terminology. I think McLuhan is basically right that, you know, technologies are extensions of the human. So it's a question of uh, not generating something altogether new. But the difference is, the difference is that the, the printing press was a technology that might have been beyond the reach of most people to produce, but was not outside the realm of human affairs. Machine learning suggests the imminent possibility of um, technological applications capable of reproducing themselves, that not reproducing themselves because they're teleologically driven, internally teleologically driven to do so, but because they're technically able to do so, that nobody understands. So a machine that two people understands, or you know, an AI that two people can understand. Uh, then produces an AI that nobody can understand because it's born in a black box, which then produces who knows how many more AIs. And this is not a uh, an idle kind of laboratory experiment thing. This is the civilizational battle that the greatest superpowers in the world are involved in at the moment. China's strategy for the future, right, is we will dominate AI because they understand AI to be the core economic mechanism of the future. Whoever controls AI will control production, basically, and, and distribution and the all-important technologies of social control. This is, China's all in on this. China's also got Silk Road Initiative and has not given up on the physical world. But it's the long-term investment strategy. Putin has said the same stuff. You know, Putin is, is not in any position to pursue this strategy in the same way that, that China is. Um, but so you have a superpower arms race to produce these AIs. The production of these AIs is going to have, it's like somewhere between the hydrogen bomb and the printing press. You know, that's what we're dealing with. It's the power of the hydrogen bomb, but the consciousness, uh, the intrinsic consciousness changing 
technology of the printing press. There's nothing in the AIs themselves. There's nothing in any individual AI that's going to be some all-powerful demigod that's going to, to change you the moment that you interact. But the scale that it's going to be able to achieve, the speed at which it's going to be able to spread, combined with what might be in isolation fairly limited effects is going to be absolutely overpowering. And what is important in that sense is to treat this like the hydrogen bomb. So in a way, that's the more instructive example, in my opinion. And maybe that sounds alarmist, but if it is alarmist, then um, perhaps we can say that it's only should be, it should only be treated as the atom bomb. Um, if the hydrogen bomb is going too far. But we know that there are technologies which have not yet destroyed civilization, which have not yet made us unto gods ourselves, but which have the capacity to uh, ruin things permanently, let us say. Technology simply too powerful to um, be let loose and that they they cannot be... You know, the logic of the atom bomb is to blow up the atom bomb. Like the atom bomb wants to explode, right? That's what it exists to do. There has to be some kind of human wisdom, human vision that determines to what ends we are putting these technologies. The AIs are both so obscure in their internal design and so tantalizingly powerful that they lead us into a trap where we believe that we can't exercise meaningful control over them because we can't technically understand them. It suggests to us that we have to cede our, our power to them, but we don't actually have to cede our power to them. We could very well cede our power to them, but we would be the ones doing that. I think there's actually a great temptation to do that, especially as at the lower level, the companies that are going to be profiting off of this will need to extract massive quantities of data to power these AIs. And the way that they'll extract those massive quantities of data will be by luring in the largest possible audiences with the kinds of services and entertainment that get the largest possible audiences to participate. Um, and, and so the, the, then you just end up with, you know, Human swarms, which is, uh, we're already kind of there. And, uh, The battle of the machines is so colossal that man almost completely disappears before it. Often already caught in the force fields of the modern battlefield, it seemed to me strange and scarcely believable that I was witnessing world historical events. Combat took on the form of a gigantic, lifeless mechanism and swept an icy, impersonal wave across the ground. It was like the cratered landscape of a dead star, lifeless and radiating heat. And yet, behind all this is man. Only he gives the machines their direction and meaning. It is he that spits from their mouths bullets, explosives, and poison. He that elevates himself and them like birds of prey above the enemy. He that sits in their stomachs as they stalk the battlefield spewing fire. It is he, the most dangerous, bloodthirsty, and purposeful being that the earth has to carry. Yeah. Can, can you guess the author? Uh, 
It was like the crater. I, I know it was like the cratered landscape of a dead star. Who is that? Junger, of course. Who uh, would later extend that? What is that from? Is that from? Uh... Uh, that's from the book after. Um, God, what's it from? Um, I just pulled it from a speech that I gave, and I don't notice that it's like the book that it, after the memoir. Um, but um, you know, he later exp- extended that image to all of society, right? Sort of modern industrialized society. And I, said, I think it's sort of just the, the 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 kind of problem of committing to the human or giving up on it is is one that we've been grappling with for at least a century, right? Um, in relationship, yeah, that to he personally change. grappled with that he, yeah. you know, and and his uh, the Jungian Jungian evolution. It was um, that was the arc in in some way. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, we're still stuck in that. I don't think we really advanced beyond that, except that the means available to us to trick ourselves into believing that it is worth divesting ourselves of our human agency are, you know, in some ways, like, what's interesting is that they're more alluring, more immediately sort of uh, tempting, yet far less dramatic than they were in Junger's age. You know, you think of kind of the industrial civilization that Junger is talking about, in that context, and there's something very stark and striking about it. It's become so pervasive now for us. It's become so much simply the digital and simulation. And, you know, the kind of cheapest, like, Tweety Bird versions of, you know, what what do you need a... uh, a cratered star landscape for when you can enslave thousands of people with some 12 pixel game on their phone. I mean, it's way more banal in a way. And yet for being more banal, that much more powerful. Um, But none of this requires that the AI themselves are thinking on their own or are conscious. None of this requires that. Um, and I don't even get into that stuff because it just seems to me unnecessary. To, you know, it's like it's like discussing the the possibilities of alien life. I mean, it's an interesting conversation, but nothing about the present debate requires venturing an answer. But you know, nothing about the potential power of AI to escape meaningful human control requires that the AI be conscious. You know, it could be uh, simply a, a tool that exists for the purpose of divesting people of their sovereignty. I mean, that could be the, the one of the ends to which it's put. So this um, leads me to a question from Adrian Bottenberger. Because he asks, my question as a longtime listener and fan of the show is, in your estimation, what manifesto or manifestos are the most influential in modern society? And I'm not going to, I don't even know what individual manifesto would be the most influential. But in relationship to this, I think about the effective altruism movement, right? Mm. 
Yeah. Because um, it is a very, in some ways it's very good, right? Um, but it, it to me seems like the most benign face of reducing the world to data, right? And so, you know, I think about like um, when it kind of burst on the scene, the big cause kept getting was sort of like the go-to cause for the the effect of altruist folks was um, mosquito nets, right? And you'd have headlines in you know newspapers. It was like you know for every three thousand three hundred and thirty-seven dollars and six cents donated to mosquito nets, you can save one human life, right? And they would literally like attach a, a number to it. And of course they would sort of caveat it. Like, you know, obviously it's more complicated, but you know, this was the, the sort of uh, push uh, because, you know, like, mosquitoes carry malaria, mosquito nets slowed the diseases spread. And, and yeah, like giving out mosquito nets is very good in, in, in areas. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And the charities that do that are very good. Um, but what uh, irritated me about it was there's this emphasis on what you can calculate. And it also like depends on excluding other factors that might be really interesting. And I, I remember ta I talked to these researchers about a case study in a, a village in, in Mozambique called the Misi, right? Where several years ago, a group of women dumped their children in front of the local police outpost. And you know, like, you feed them, they demanded to the officers who had robbed them of their main food source, um, which was mosquito nets, right? Because... In these towns, people given free nets who um, were very, very poor, they would use them for fishing, right? Now, the men would sew nets together and trawl these, like, bigger nets made out of multiple mosquito nets from the back of ships, uh, from the back of boats. And since the holes in mosquito nets capture even very small fish, this would, like, lead to worry about, uh, about overfishing. And so there were other nonprofits who were focused on food scarcity. They pushed for laws against the practice, right? which meant the cops, local cops, were pressured to go after uh, mosquito net fishing. But in the local dynamics of any one of these villages, um, going against the men who have more political power is difficult. Poor women would also trawl the shallows with individual nets, which is not really an issue for overfishing, or at least this is what I'm told by some of the folks who had uh, worked in this town. But Rather than going after the men who are trawling from the back of boats, they're going after the women. And so you have like local doing the actual potential overfishing. Exactly. Right. So, you know, the upshot is local cops like chasing poor women down the beach, harassing them uh, who lived in, you know, one researcher told me they were in perpetual fear of low level reprisals. And this didn't just happen in Mozambique. Uh, one of them told me she was asked by an aid worker, do you know anybody in Malawi with an incinerator? I've got a mountain of mosquito nets to burn. Right. And, like none of this means that mosquito nets are bad or like they, they did a tremendous amount of good, but it's also just like humans are weird and treating them like equations is ridiculous. And especially since what actually needs to happen for major improvements in human lives is political, focusing on this like, like narrow data questions often misses, I think, really much more fundamental questions. You can't go to that village now because it's, it's, um, uh, taken by Islamic radical groups, right? And mm. uh, there's a way in which I especially see like the effect of altruism movement seems to be very popular among a very particular section of like, you know, highly educated elites. Um, and it seems to me 
Like, of course it would be because it is, it doesn't ask for fundamental political change. It's like you can make a lot of money and actually do more good than somebody operating um, in close proximity to to the poor, right? You know, I think about like the, uh, the critiques against like Mother Teresa, uh, where it's like, the hospitals were not well managed and all this other stuff. And it's like, yes, but you only care about these in the first place because Mother Teresa actually went there, right? Which is exactly the same critiques that were leveled against um, uh, St. Damien of Molokai, right? Damien and the lepers in, in Honolulu. And famously, uh, uh, do you know this, this story of like Robert Louis Stevenson defending him? No. So like one of the local reverends had been like, He's like, I don't understand why this guy's so famous because he had famously like gone and and worked with the lepers and worked among them and then actually died, like contracted leprosy and died. And so he became this very famous figure. And to some of the folks on the mainland who had been like, you know, using the modern, most effective techniques to try and deal with the leprosy problem, it was um, uh, very frustrating uh, that they were talking about him as if he's a saintly philanthropist, uh, when instead uh, the Reverend uh, C.M. Uh, Hyde said he was a coarse, dirty man, headstrong and bigoted. He was not sent to Malachi. He went there without, without orders and had no hand in the reforms or improvements inaugurated, right? Uh, and Stevenson writes this long letter just like attacking Hyde. Um, uh, and he says... Um, and he, and he sort of admits that the guy had all of these problems, right? Um, mm -hmm. and he says, uh, I tell you that to a mind not prejudiced by jealousy, all the reforms of the Lazaretto, even those which he most vigorously opposed, are properly the work of Damien. They are the evidence of his success. They are what his heroism provoked from the reluctant and the careless. Many were before him in the field, Mr. Meyer, for instance, of whose faithful work we hear too little. There have been many since, and some had more worldly wisdom, though none had more devotion than our saint. Before his day, even you will confess, they had affected little. It was his part, by one striking act of martyrdom, to direct all men's eyes on that distressful country, had a and with the price of his life, he made the place illustrious and public, and that, if you will consider largely, was the run reform needful, pregnant of all that should succeed. There was not a clean mm. cup or towel in the bishop home, but dirty Damien washed it. And um, I think that the effect of altruism, I mean, like there's sort of like the benign faces, which are like, let's make you know, focus more on evidence and, and not get hoodwinked by things that have like nice stories around them, but aren't that good in the world. That's, that's fine. But then charity watch groups are nothing new. I think this sort of, uh, the overall approach though is a very, very sort of benign and altruistic view of how to do good in the world that I think is runs the risk of sort of, um, diverting us from, more fundamental and important ways of changing the world. Yeah. Um, I forgot what was the question we were responding to. It? Uh, most influential manifestos in modern ah, society. So I think yeah. I think that, and the reason that I say the effective altruism movement is I think that it is, you know, it's a, it channels an ethos. I mean, it seems to uh, it, it channels a particular approach to, to 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 human behavior, which is very much in concert with like. The tech society, like the, the increasingly technological society in the tech sector and the way that it would like to 
view human beings, right? And that view, I, I find genuinely horrifying, even in its most, like, altruistic manifestation. Where I find it the most, not even, but precisely at its most altruistic is where I find it most horrifying. And, you know, um, we sometimes joke that, you know, like, what are we doing talking about manifestos all the time? Neither of us has any interest in manifestos. We enterprise somewhat dubious. It's um, that kind of you know, strident, um, you know, like, frankly, presumptuous, often fairly messianic uh, endeavor is not what interests us, you know, and makes us suspicious. But um, insofar as there are, there are good manifestos and bad manifestos. I would say that effective altruism is the kind of manifesto that um, I'm kind of horrified by because it seems so benign and captures so much of what I find like inescapable in what is horrifying in the world today because it is seemingly so meticulously rationally constructed and all in all a matter of virtue and good deed. It's like the communist manifesto at least is revolutionary. And so therefore, you know, doesn't claim to be modest. And so therefore makes clear what it's about. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I think communism is a diseased philosophy and, um, you know, you know, communism bad, but also technocracy bad, very, very bad technocracy. And um, the technocratic society in a, you know, it's like over a long enough span of time, a technocratic society seems to become more and more centralized and more and more technocratic. And the the thing that ends up happening, and this is where we kind of come back to the machine learning question, is that to make up for the mistakes of the mosquito net crusades, the machinery to control public opinion becomes more and more powerful. And so, you know, the, the technocratic solution is that we need mosquito nets. Okay, great. The mosquito nets are leading to the arrests of poor women. Okay, we need to ban discussion of machine of mosquito nets, and that seems to be the kind of the technocratic process. Um, and I, I don't like it one bit. Do you have a manifesto you think is the most influential in modern society? Yeah, I, I said the communist manifesto. That's uh, that's got to be up there. Or maybe... Um, yeah, I was originally going to go with Ayn Rand and the communist manifesto as sort of dueling. Oh, Ayn Rand. Yeah, that would be up there. Uh, no, the feminine mystique. Um, feminine mystique is certainly, certainly very powerful, but it's hard to see anything really competing with the communist manifesto if we're talking about the 20th century counting as well you know maybe um well what would you if you're going to pick something from mao what would you pick i guess if you're going to pick something from mao it's like why not go with the, the communist manifesto excuse me in that case so um we i think we have one more question right let's do it david browning says what literary works on the post 9-11 wars have you found the most insightful would be interested here, both on fiction and nonfiction. Well, here I'll 
awesome stuff because I, I, you know, look, it's, we know too many of the people involved in this stuff to be yeah. um, fully impartial. So rather than like naming all the books of, I, I'm going to not name anything by anybody I know personally, Phil included, because um, th- that list starts to get too long. We've had Matt Gallagher on the podcast. We've had Scott Beauchamp on the- Elliot Ackerman, yeah. Elliot on the, I mean, Elliot's written so many books that I couldn't name them all if I wanted to. Um, but yeah, so without getting into any of that, um, you know, it's, I, I guess it's a, it's like a bit how you're defining what counts as a, a book um, about the wars. What's the name? I'll tell you something I really like right now. We were uh, just discussing it and I, I apologize because I'm forgetting the name of the writer. I think it's Kevin something, but he has a substack called the hunt for Tom Clancy and, um, um, I recommend the Hunt for Tom Clancy Substack. I like, uh, not a hundred percent sure what he's up to, but uh, yeah, I like the folks that we've had on the podcast. We recommend. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of folks that are not like actual friends of mine, um, and uh, actually Bonnenberger, uh, who wrote in a question, has a book called The Disappointed Soldier. Uh, and an yeah. anthology that he did with Brian Kastner called The Road Ahead. That's cool too. Um, there's some interesting stuff like that's a little bit outside what you sort of normally counter. I mean, there's some good Iraqi fiction. I like uh, Sadawi's Frankenstein in Baghdad is really interesting where it's like a, a guy creates a Frankenstein monster out of body parts from the aftermath of suicide bombings. And then the monster starts taking revenge on the suicide, on the people who are responsible for the deaths of the body parts that he's composed of. But then sort of midway through, he realizes that like some of the victims are also perpetrators as well. And it, it um, it's a strange comic, really interesting novel. Uh, I, I've already talked about Solar Abdo's out of Mesopotamia. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Dwayne Ferry has a book called Revolutions of All Colors, which kind of revolves around uh, so the first chapter starts with the Panthers and then it's these like brothers in the modern area, like one goes into the military and it's like three different sort of like, I guess, black men negotiating masculinity and, 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 you know, part of it takes place in Ukraine. And it's just a really sort of interesting book. That's not direct. It's called revolutions of all colors by Dwayne Feria. When did it come out? A couple of years ago. Um, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. But it's playing off the revolution of all colors. It's playing off the color revolutions. Exactly. uh... Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, it's not directly about the, the, the GWAT, but sort of people negotiating their own sense of self in, in relationship to a kind of changing world. Um, that I thought was really good. Uh, by the way, I should mention in terms of Ukraine, Matt Gallagher, who has spent some time doing reporting in Ukraine as well as he set up like a training, helped set up a training, uh, military training school there when the war first broke out. Uh, he's got a novel coming out called Daybreak that's really good, uh, which is about two. I think it comes out in February. Uh, it's about two like Americans who had served in our wars, but like didn't get what they wanted out of it. And then when Ukraine happens, they they go to Ukraine to to sign up for the fight but also to kind of like 
achieve whatever it is that they failed to achieve for themselves in their own wars. It's really, yeah, yeah. Good. it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know guys like that. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do know some guys like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, one other book I would mention is, is a very good book about Afghanistan, about the Taliban by a journalist named Anand Gopal called. Oh yeah. That's really good. That is really good. Uh, uh, brave and a uh, brave book to write because, you know, it's basically from the perspective of the Taliban and um, it's fantastic. And uh, if you'd read that book, you know, the things that were supposed to be such big surprises in Afghanistan probably wouldn't have been um, such a big surprise when the, uh, you know, the, the 20 year American war effort. I'll give a, a, a shout to, um, uh, to Peter von Ackmel's uh, photography, Sorry for the War and Disco Night, September 11th. They're good books of photography. And for poetry, I'd say Graham Barnhart's The War Makes Everyone Lonely is really good. He was a uh, special forces and spent time in Afghanistan. All right. I hear uh, children screaming, speaking of this father. So. for what we've been talking about. It has uh, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, people, for uh, whoever sent in questions that we didn't get to. We're apologetic, and uh, we'll you know, try to address them at some point in the future. And there will be another episode coming out this month. So this is a special, um, not Q&A, ah, colloquium, a special, special edition. We'll have a full episode coming out later this month. And uh, see you all there. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>